Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Hello, everyone. I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. And I'm really happy to welcome today's audience, which includes about 150 people who represent an interesting range, some of whom were in China or about to be in China almost at the same time as today's guests, although not exactly because as he points out in his book, it was a very, very special limited time that he was there and others who came to China at different points during their lives or their careers, spanning from almost 50 years ago to today. And I'm particularly pleased to be moderating this event um, for a few reasons. The most important being that Paul Pickowitz, the author of this wonderful book, Hi. So a, a sensational encounter with high socialist China, which is a very clever name. Um, in addition to, uh, the, Paul and I were both living in Hong Kong at the same time that this book or the events of this book came about. I was a very lowly, probably the youngest official at the U.S. consulate in Hong Kong. And Paul was across the harbor uh, living there and working at the wonderful University Services Center, which I hope he'll talk about as part of his discussion this afternoon. If not, I'm going to ask him to talk about that. Um, so it was. So we lived there at the same time, and so that's one of the reasons. The second reason is that I know several of the people, in addition to Paul, who were on that trip. And in fact, one of them, Susan Shirk, was my roommate for the five months preceding that trip. Unfortunately, the fates decreed that my tour, two-year tour of duty at the U.S. consulate was over on June 1st, 1971, just about a week or so before Paul and his group left for China. I was really upset. First of all, I was very jealous. Everybody all of the Americans in China were really jealous of these folks who were getting the chance to go into China, which we used to go up to the border and stare over, but the thought that we could actually get in was a really, really big deal. So I was very jealous and I was really sorry that when that I wouldn't be there when Susan came back so that I could get all of her firsthand impressions of what it had been like. Um, so now I'm getting those impressions through Paul and through this, this, this great book that he's done. Uh, the format's going to be, Paul's going to talk a little bit about the event, how it happened, why it happened, and then take us through some of the wonderful pictures that fill the book and are very, very evocative for anyone who was in China during that period. Uh, and then we will go to the q and I'll start with a few questions and then we'll open it up to questions from the audience. We're, we're very much looking forward to it, and I'm not going to introduce Paul. You all have his bio, but it's, um, it's very clear 
when you look at this book, when you, when you see how much time and effort went into not only the selection of the materials, but the conceit that Paul uses to write this memoir in a very interesting way. It's not like your usual memoirs of people's lives, but he does this all very creatively. And it's very clear that he is in the visual arts just by the look and the feel of this wonderful book. So Paul, it's all yours. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, I'm extremely grateful to the committee for inviting me and especially to uh, Jan and Margot and Steve and Clorinda, the team that has helped to put the whole event together. Actually, Clorinda was a student of mine uh, at Schwarzman College at Tsinghua University just two years ago. I know uh, Joan Kaufman is listening in and she'll appreciate those connections that keep on uh, happening. Um, and I want to thank everybody who is taking part. Uh, I guess over 150 people have signed up for the event. Uh, given everything that's going on, uh, I'm delighted that people have found the time to listen in. We've got the uh, pandemic, we've got the Hong Kong situation, we've got Taiwan, uh, we've got Black Lives Matter, uh, we've got uh, India border issues, Xinjiang. I mean, it goes on and on and on. I read the New York Times this morning, and it's clear that, you know, Sino-American relations are highly problematic, and we need uh, the committee more than ever. Uh, the committee does great work, and I know everybody realizes that, but we need it more than ever. Uh, and I want to thank um, former PhD students of mine, because I got a quick look at the list of people who are participating today. I may not have the most recent version, but a large number of my former uh, PhD students, so people mentored by Joe Eshrick uh, and me, are sitting in. So I want to say hello to everybody. Uh, we were going to have a reunion at AAS in Boston last spring, but guess what? That was canceled. Uh, and I want to thank so many old friends uh, whose names I noticed quickly yesterday on the list. People who have contributed so much over the years, Joe Asherick, of course, being one of them. Chuck Hayford's name was on there. Andy Nathan, amazing contributions. Uh, Tony Kane, an old friend. I think I saw Bill Spidell's name on there. These are people who really launched uh, exchange programs uh, between the U.S. and China. Tom Gold's name was on there uh, and on and on and on. It's just wonderful to be back in touch, even if it's virtually. Uh, and says, the book is called A Sensational Encounter with High Socialist China. So I wanna say a few words about how this book came about, and then uh, I wanna show some pictures and then we'll get into the discussion. Uh, in, I think it was 2015, I donated the entirety of my photo collection from that trip to China in 1971 to the UC San Diego Library. And the library went ahead and made a big deal of it. They digitized all the pictures, literally thousands of them. And you can get access to those pictures by just going online. Uh, that was back in 2015. I was happy to make that donation. Uh, in 2018, I attended an international conference uh, on the five senses in Chinese history. And it got me thinking uh, about the possible use of that kind of paradigm, thinking of the five senses and our experiences in China as visitors, as researchers, as people who live there. Uh, then in 2019, the City University Press in Hong Kong, speaking of Hong Kong, uh, contacted the UC San Diego's incredible Chinese studies librarian, Chen Xi, uh, to ask whether I would like to write a book on the 1971 visit 
uh, a book that would use lots of photographs from that collection. It ended up being 150 photographs, uh, and uh, we're going to see some of them today, but nothing like the 150 uh, from that particular collection. They had seen the digitized images, um, and they wanted to do something, so I, I, I credit them with that. I said, okay, and went back to my diary, which I still have from that period. I kept a day-to-day -day diary during that trip, June, July, 1971, and I went back through the images to take a closer look. Uh, I'm not a great fan of the autobiographical and memoir genres. Um, I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something different. Um, and call it a reflection on something that happened 50 years ago. Uh, that's half a century, folks. I don't like to think of myself in that category. I was 24 years old at the time, and a half a century has gone by. And I wanted to reflect back on that using my diaries, using uh, these images. And I decided at the outset to absolutely 100% reject the strict chronological approach. The sort of approach is, I went to Guangzhou, then I went to Shanghai, then I went to Suzhou, then I went to Nanjing. Boring, you know, who wants to read anything like that? Uh, this is not organized chronologically. So let me tell you how it is organized in conceptual terms. Conceptually, the book is organized in four different ways, four ways that interface with each other. The five main chapters are about the five senses. What did 1971 China sound like? What did it taste like? What did it look like? What did it smell like? I have a great chapter there on smell. Uh, what did it feel like to the touch, the tactile dimension? Um, so um, these uh, were ideas. Now, I don't want to do any spoilers. I don't want to tell you. In each chapter, I mention a number of examples, and then I come up with, well, let me tell you the big experience on taste, the big one on smell, the big one on sound. I'm not going to do that. I don't want to spoil it. But through the chapters, I go through the five senses and, and, and uh, reveal visual and written data uh, that touch on. I thought it was an interesting way to reflect on that uh, China that existed in the middle of the Cultural Revolution back in 1971. The second conceptual category I use, um, I, I define the political moment in China in summer 1971 as high socialism. And of course, that begs the question, what do you mean by high socialism? Uh, by that, I mean very, very specifically the period that started with the Ninth Party Congress in April 1969 and continued on. We were there in the summer of 1971. It was a time when Chinese leaders identified China as the most progressive socialist revolutionary force in world history. This was a major claim. This was a major claim. So I've given it the name high socialism. After we left China in July, 81 days after my group left China, that high socialist, uh, sorry, that high socialist moment crashed and burned with the death of Lin Biao, 
in what was claimed to be an attempted assassination of Mao Zedong uh, and then his death in an air crash. That was in September 1971. So I'm calling high socialism that moment, April 1969 to September 1971. But of course, while we were there in June and July, we had no hint that uh, something like uh, the Lin Biao, the whole Lin Biao incident was going to occur. Um, I spent four hours, um, as a group, we spent four hours with Zhang Junqiao and Yao Wenyuan along with Zhou Enlai. Uh, and, um, you know, who could have known at that point that those people, Zhou en, uh, that Zhang Junqiao and Yao Wenyuan, you know, would be arrested and thrown in prison uh, uh, in subsequent years. So it's looking at that, freezing that moment from, uh, in summer 71, in what I'm calling the high socialist period from uh, April 1969 to uh, September 1971. The third framework that I use, uh, I also conceptualize the book in theatrical terms, in terms of three performances that were going on every single day. So I have a lot of theatrical language in there as well. The three performances were the larger cultural revolution performance that was going on 24 seven throughout China while we were there, it was going on anyway, whether we were there or not, this is what I call the larger uh, cultural revolution performance. The second performance I talk about is the smaller performance put on for us, put on for our delegation, our group, in an effort put on for us uh, uh, as we visited through uh, model units. So we went through all sorts of cities, villages, rural places, urban spaces, uh, and invariably when we got to all these locations, uh, all of them were model units uh, of this high socialist moment, uh, and, and we witnessed performances put on for our benefit. These are smaller performances within that larger performance of the Cultural Revolution. And then the third one is what I call our own amateurish performances, uh, done in an effort to foster friendship, improve US-China relations, and promote opening, given the fact that we were there so early. Uh, so singing, dancing, you know, we did all of the above uh, in, in all the places that we, that we, that we visited. So finally, the last framework that's used in the book, uh, it also frames the 1971 visit in terms of the absolutely central importance of Hong Kong in the run-up to the trip and in the aftermath of the trip. And the City U Press asked me specifically to do this. They said, you've got the five chapters on the five senses and the high socialism and the, the performances and so forth, but would you talk more about what happened in Hong Kong in the months running up to how this trip happened. And I make the claim in the book that this was the first visit to the People's Republic of China by university-based China scholars since 1949. So how did this actually happen in the Hong Kong setting? And then once we left China, uh, of course, during our visit, Henry Kissinger made his secret visit to China, and then the news was suddenly popped out, Nixon is coming to China in spring 72. And so um, as soon as we crossed the border, the international press was just absolutely, you know, dying to talk with us about our experiences, given that China was now on the front pages, owing to the Kissinger visit. Okay, so let me just run you very, very quickly through um, just, I think, 26 pictures 
with uh, Steve's help. We're going to go through these and I'm just going to say a few words uh, about uh, each picture. This is the group. Here we are in Hong Kong. That's my calligraphy down below. Uh, so we, uh, there we are. I'm on the upper left. I know you can see that right away. Pretty obvious. Susan Shirk is down there in the lower right. Uh, we had a very diverse group. Uh, there, was a, there was a veteran from uh, U.S. military service. There were two Protestant missionaries. Uh, and so on and so forth. So it was, a, it was a great group, but we met in Hong Kong. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. So in terms of the five senses, uh, some images will be useful about the tactile dimension, this idea of participating in hard labor without the benefit of machines, you know, development, socialist development, cannot wait for machines, we're gonna have to do it all by labor. So this kind of scene would look, I think, odd to young people uh, in big cities in China today, but there we are. Same kind of thing. If you're going to build uh, buildings, uh, don't wait for the machines. Uh, let's just carry it up there and use physical labor. So we heard this theme of, you know, the need for everybody to participate in hard physical labor. We heard this almost every day. Here's an intellectual, for example, a professor from Beijing University. What's he doing? We visited a May 7th cadre school which all the intellectuals, professors from the universities had to go to, to participate in labor. So this is a professor from Beijing University making pails at a May 7th cadre school. So this was pretty interesting. Here's that same message, very tactile, hands-on. So I decided I can do that too. Give me a hoe and I'll go out into the field. And we were very eager to participate in labor. That was the tactile dimension of showing that even as students and uh, graduate students and budding uh, intellectuals, um, you know, we were capable of doing this. You can see the officials there look a little bit nervous about uh, the young American with the hoe, but anyway, it wasn't gonna stop me. People were extremely curious. This picture is interesting because of the way people are dressed, especially the way women are dressed with their buttons buttoned right up to the top. A uh, little girl, intensely curious. This is at the Great Wall of China, and these are local tourists, but uh, the look is very, very uh, uh, typical. You don't see anybody, even with a, with a, with a wristwatch. Uh, that, that would have been something highly desirable. Some people had them, a lot of people didn't. Going through villages, all sorts of unexpected things happened. Um, we're getting off a bus. A bunch of kids ran out from the village to say hi. Who could have thought? None of them. They don't even have shoes. They're not even wearing shoes. They all have Mao badges, but they don't have shoes. Uh, but they're clapping and uh, wondering, you know, who are these? Who are these visitors coming into our village? Uh, we visited uh, uh, a hospital, and the theme. It, the book goes into great detail on this, but all the units are run by revolutionary committees. The revolutionary committees are dominated by the military. And that's one of the characteristics of the high socialist moment. The military is in charge of the revolutionary committees and they greet us. Uh, and this was to see uh, surgery. We put on surgical gowns and we stood beside uh, physicians, the surgeons, as they did surgery. We witnessed, I think, four surgeries altogether. Um, and uh, the only means of, of, of anesthesia, we were told, was acupuncture. And the patients, therefore, were awake during the procedure. So here we are visiting the hospital in Beijing. Here we are. This woman was having an ovarian cyst removed. Uh, it turned out to be that I watched that. I, you know, so this is part of the visual, part of the tactile, uh, standing there, uh, knowing nothing about medicine and watching this woman's abdomen open and a big ovarian cyst taken out and shown to us. And she was awake during the whole thing. Uh, 
Uh, this is interesting because it shows in the urban sector, at least, a diversity in the way that kids dressed the young young girls. You see them very colorfully dressed in a park, happen to bump into them. They have these supersized Mao badges, uh, at least a couple of them. Uh, but again, this is uh, this would have been cutting edge uh, urban young kids uh, and the way they looked uh, at about this time. Uh, this was, again, I write extensively about this. We got to visit a militia unit, people's militia unit uh, in Nanjing and spent quite a bit of time there, write about it extensively in the book. Uh, and you see kids, kids 10, 11, 12 years old uh, in these units uh, learning how to use all sorts of uh, weaponry. Here you see them, some of the youngsters, young teens with their, uh, it says in Chinese, the red, the red banner say, little red guard. Uh, uh, and uh, with the Mao badges and learning how to, uh, uh, you know, because just shortly before this, there was a border war between the Soviet Union and China. Uh, and there was a lot of talk in this high socialist period of, you know, anything could happen, we have to prepare everybody, including the kids, uh, for armed conflict, including <laughs> the nicely dressed young primary school students. Uh, again, holding the Mao book, which is functioning as a virtually as a religious text, you know, during this period, uh, and uh, holding the weapons. And in terms of the Mao cult, uh, the Mao cult was, of course, everywhere. Uh, everywhere we went, this was part of the visual aspect of traveling around China. This is in Shanghai at the Shanghai, Shanghai Industrial Exhibit. Um, I don't recall if that statue is still up. Uh, it may or may not be. Some of them have come down. Uh, uh, Jan is shaking her head. It's down now, yeah. Uh, but uh, this is the kind of thing one saw everywhere. And again, going to schools, uh, it, was, it almost felt like going to a church, you know, a very fundamentalist kind of church. There's the Bible. Uh, the kids have their arms folded in exactly the same way. Uh, very attentive. The girls seated uh, in one place, the boys seated in another place. Uh, this was a school, a primary school uh, we visited. We visited all sorts of schools. Here's back to the hospital. So this, this fellow is um, having surgery done, again, using acupuncture as the only means of anesthesia. But what's, what's fantastic, not only in tactile terms about what's, what he's going through, but that he has the sacred text you know, inches from his head. Uh, and in, I remember in one of the cases when the surgery was over, the first thing said by the, uh, uh, some people in another culture might thank God, you know, after a surgery like this and uh, uh, others would thank Chairman Mao and having held that, that, that sacred book so close. This is a, uh, another school, Revolutionary Committee, once again, dominated by the military. Uh, which is what was characteristic of this high socialist era with Lin Biao chosen as Mao's closest comrade in arms and successor. Here, uh, acupuncture is being used on uh, deaf-mute children uh, in a deaf-mute school. It was in Guangzhou. And again, you see they've got the sacred book uh, uh, nearby. Even in terms of art, the visual parts, you're visiting art academies and so forth. And the theme very much was China is the leader of the world international socialist revolutionary movement, especially the third world, the Asia, Africa, Latin America. And here's an oil painter doing a realistic, using the actual model of the gun uh, of a Vietnamese, uh, uh, you know, Viet Cong fighter uh, in, during the Vietnam War. 
this is a better one in the sense that it's a huge mural and it basically is saying uh, again China is the leader of the peoples of Asia Africa and Latin America forget about the Soviet Union they're revisionists uh, and it shows you know get the US aggressors get them out of you know Asia and and China will will lead this uh, struggle this is in Suzhou I had a beautiful uh, imperial era uh, complex and then this poster, oh, it's actually painted onto the, to the wall, uh, quite, quite remarkable visually. Uh, we actually did what we called it people's diplomacy. Uh, that is to say, when we were in Beijing, uh, we made a request to visit with uh, Prince Norodom Sihanouk, who was in exile. The government in power in Cambodia at the time was an ally of the United States, Cam uh, and uh, Prince Sihanouk was uh, in Beijing. We went to see him. Uh, this is long before the Khmer Rouge come to power, and I'll never forget a comment he made. He referred to the Khmer Rouge as his little red Buddhists. Uh, that, that got uh, a nice chuckle from everybody. He served us French uh, hors d'oeuvres uh, and so forth. Uh, quite a remarkable, that's me in the back, by the way. We met Zhou Enlai. Uh, as I said, for four hours one night, and you know we could spend hours just talking about that. I, I talk about it in the book at length. Uh, some interesting and surprising things happened uh, during that four-hour meeting, but it was from eight o'clock at night until uh, midnight. Uh, and Yao Wenyuan and Zhang Shunqiao, two of the people later uh, identified as members of the Gang of Four, were also there for the whole four-hour period, um, and uh, it was quite remarkable. But I think Jan may have some questions about that. Yeah, he said that night that he said tomorrow morning, July 19th, 1971, your, peop, your photograph will appear in People's Daily. Uh, and sure enough, it did. This is the next day's uh, People's Daily. There's Joe in the middle. There's Jung Chun Chow to the left. Yao Wenyuan to the right. I'm there behind Joe. And then there are a bunch of people I could identify way over to the left, Joe Peiyuan, uh, who had uh, become a physicist who was the uh, president of uh, Beijing University when it reopened as a worker peasant soldier university. And there are lots of other notable figures there. One of my jobs was to uh, make some final remarks that evening and to pin, we had a little button uh, from our group with a peace symbol on it. And, you know, in Chinese, long live the friendship between the Chinese and American people. And one of us was to pin it onto Joe and Lai. And I have to admit, uh, he looks extremely nervous about the pinning. Uh, and you can see Zhang Chunqiao over to the right there. He also looks really, really nervous. Uh, you know, am I going to stick the pin into his chest? Okay, next picture. Suddenly, Everybody should relax. There's the pin. It worked. <laughs> he, he wasn't hurt. He, he got a smile and gave him a photograph of the group uh, and so forth. Um, and so my feeling uh, about this kind of when I went to Hong Kong in 1970, exactly 50 years ago, virtually today, went off to Hong Kong for this adventure that ended up with this time in China. Uh, life is interesting. Things come along. It's unplanned. It's unscripted. Uh, and so sometimes uh, when things come along, what you do is you just you just jump in the you just jump into the water. So let's see the final slide. That's me. That's the that's not the final slide. This is the press conference at Hong Kong and the Foreign Correspondents Club on the way out. International press met with us, and I guess I might have said something along those lines. Uh, wow, we were there, and we had an opportunity to jump into the water, and so we just jumped into the water. 
there we go. <laughs> there we go. That's me in Nanjing jumping into the water and seeing what China was like in the middle of 1971. So I hope I kept under our time limit, but we're going to go back over to Jan. So thank you for keeping within the time limits and thank you for picking out some of those pictures. And I would encourage those of you who are history buffs or who either were in China during that time and want to, or very soon thereafter, and want to bring back some wonderful memories to take a look. The photos for, for people who weren't professional photographers, you got some very good photographs. So thank you for sharing them with all of us. Um, I just have a few questions or themes I want to pursue with you a, a little bit more. You talked about at one point, the importance of Hong Kong. But I, I wonder if you can go into that a little more, because I don't think people who have you know, came to the study of China after 1979 or in the 80s or 90s understand how very difficult it was to be studying a culture, studying a people, a nation, a country, an ideology, of whatever, without ever being able to step foot into that country and the very important role that Hong Kong played at that time vis-a-vis -vis China watching, uh, both for the academic community and for others, if you want to talk about that. Um, how that's changed over the years, you have visited Hong Kong over the past five decades, and what the current situation in Hong Kong is going to meet. I'm not talking about big geopolitical issues. Now I'm talking about Hong Kong as a place where people went to better understand China and do it in a way where they had free access to archives, to libraries, and to the ability to speak about the issues that were going on in a free and open academic manner that we're used to. So if you could talk about those Okay. The period before, in the middle, and now at, toward the future. Okay, uh, let me let me go ahead. And that's a big question, lots of dimensions. But, but uh, for the younger people uh, in the audience, uh, you cannot imagine uh, graduate students like us at the time thinking we were going to be devoting our life to the study of China with absolutely no opportunity to ever go there. I had mentors. Most of us had mentors who had never been in China. And yet we're studying the place. So how'd you like to study Germany and never have a chance to go there? How would you like to study Australia and never have a chance to go there? And that was what we were looking at. And I wasn't even a scholar of uh, contemporary China. I was My dissertation work was on the 1920s and 30s, Republican period. But in those days, as graduate students, you had two, well, three options. You can stay in the U.S. and work the libraries. You can go to Taiwan. Many, many people went to Taiwan and spent a year doing dissertation research there, or you can go to Hong Kong. I chose Hong Kong because of the nature of my subject. Uh, I was doing you know, revolutionary literary debates in the 1920s and 30s, and I was gonna find a lot more sources in Hong Kong uh, through the University Service Center and so forth. Uh, and so most of the people who were interested in the revolution or in uh, contemporary China took the Hong Kong option and went to Hong Kong for a year. Uh, and you're right. I mean, people, you're that close, but the frustration of being that close, even if you weren't a scholar of present-day China, but hey, I still want to be there. I want to go. That's the tactile dimension. I want to set foot uh, on, on Chinese soil, and I want to meet people there and shake their hands. 
so that was frustrating. There were bus tours that took tourists up to a cliff overlooking red China. You could look into the distance and see red China. It was crazy. So um, Hong Kong was uh, incredibly important, not to say we didn't have this burning desire. I think all young people in the China field wanted to find a way to get to China and figure out a way to do research there. It took a long time before that was possible. In my case, not until the late 1970s. Uh, but meanwhile, Hong Kong continued to be an incredibly important uh, a place, not just for archives, but what began to happen as early as the late 60s, early 70s, and on through the 70s, is that you got refugees coming from China. People literally would jump in the water and swim over to Hong Kong. Uh, and so lots of scholars were looking for opportunities. They were so uh, eager to talk to somebody who had had personal experience in China that they would interview people in Hong Kong. That was an extremely important thing. Uh, and then the, there were representatives of the, Hong, of the uh, P, PRC press there. There were three or four newspapers that were, so you could be reading papers that were really being controlled by Beijing. You could read the uh, Hong Kong papers with different perspectives. So it was an ex extremely exciting place to be. After, uh, and so for grad students now who just assume, I think all of the grad students, Joe Eshrick and I mentored, 34, 35 grad students, they all went to China. That was just normal. You get a ticket, you get on a plane, you go to China, and you keep on going back. So I think there was uh, a lessening of uh, the importance of Hong Kong as a research center uh, for, for scholars. Although I think it never stopped. There were always people who went there. And I think to this day, the University Service Center has relocated. But to this day, the University Service Center, I know some of my grad students have been there to use the materials they have. So I continue to believe that Hong Kong is uh, a really important place to do research. You know, one can only hope that the current things that are going on in Hong Kong with respect to censorship and political tightness are not going to make it more difficult to do research related to either Hong Kong or China, uh, uh, PRC history or, you know, earlier periods, you know, in Hong Kong. Um, I, I, I was there as recently as last let's see, uh, October. I was there in the early part of October in the middle of the demonstrations and everything. And I met up with a lot of my uh, former students and old friends, including journalist friends. Mike Chinoy uh, lives there now and uh, we, we got caught up. So I think uh, there's a lot of worry. There's a, a lot of worry about what Hong Kong is going to be like you know, going on into the future. But for us, it was uh, just this wonderland of uh, here I am in Asia. It was my first trip to Asia. On the way over, I stopped briefly in Japan and Taiwan, but it was my first trip to Asia as a 24-year-old. And um, uh, it was a, a fantastic uh, experience. But And I could never have known that various things would happen coincidentally that would allow us to actually make a trip to China. And then I've been visiting China you know, ever since, on up to uh, the present. So, um, uh, you know, three cheers for Hong Kong. Uh, and also uh, people I think still, you know, need to get access directly to China uh, and interact with people there to do their research. Okay, I should, I have been neglectful as a moderator. So first of all, thank you for that answer. But I, I have been neglectful as a moderator and not told those who haven't been on a national committee public program before that if you would like to ask a question, you should go to the Q&A icon that's at the bottom of your screen and just type in a question. We will try to get to it. I might lump two or three questions in together. Um, and in fact, two have just come in. I'm going to do that with. But first, um, well, let, let me 
get to those first before my own questions. It's one of these sort of mirrors my own question, uh, and that is um, you met a lot of people along the way, from Joanne Lai down to people on the street, people in parks. Um, you had a lot of conversations with these people. The question is, and you also, I know the makeup of your group was such that many of you had very different levels of belief in the system that you were looking at. So one of the, the major overall questions I had was, was how did you get along as a group with those different uh, political beliefs represented amongst all of you. Um, have you stayed together as a group? Do you have reunions, etc.? So let me ask you that first part of it, and then I'll get to the second part, which also includes questions from others. So yes, I mean, we met, we, we were all, all at the University Service Center uh, on Argyle Street in Hong Kong in those days. We met there, we bonded. It's true, people came from different universities, they had different backgrounds. Some people were studying present-day China, which means mid-cultural revolution China. Some of us were studying earlier periods, different disciplines, uh, looking at different kinds of materials. But we got along, we're all roughly in the same age group. Uh, and we, we got along very well. We had lunch there, you know, every day we talked. And we all fantasized about, wouldn't it be great to be able to go to China someday? Uh, how can we spend our lives as some of our mentors did in the field and never actually get to the place? Uh, so, but it's true, the, the group was very diverse uh, in terms of, I, you know, so as I mentioned before, the, uh, Tony Garaventi, he was a, a military veteran, had been in the army. Um, there were two Protestant missionaries, Ray and we, uh, Rhea Whitehead were Protestant missionaries uh, and, uh, and so forth. Susan, uh, you know, went on and became, she worked for the State Department, you know, later in her career. Uh, we had a tremendous spectrum. I think probably the two things that uh, there was broad agreement on uh, politically were uh, opposition to the war in Vietnam. I mean, m most of us had been active in one way or another protesting uh, against the war in Vietnam, uh, which was really at its peak then. I mean, I, I remember uh, in high school, uh, because I went to college and so forth, I, I didn't get drafted. Uh, I had, you know, uh, kids, I, teenagers, I played football with in high school who were drafted and died in Vietnam. I didn't even know where Vietnam was as a high school student and, and why we were there and so forth. So there was a great deal of interest uh, in, in uh, uh, the Vietnam War and opposition to it that I think we shared. The other big issue that we shared was what in those days was called women's lib. Uh, so there wasn't a person in the group who wasn't, you know, gung-ho on women's lib. And we made a big fuss about that in China during the trip because they were claiming everywhere we went that there was, you know, Nanu Pingdang, men and women are equal. And we just kept on seeing evidence time and again that that wasn't necessarily, you know, the case. Uh, and we brought it up and so forth. Uh, so, and I talk about that in the, in the book as well. So, so there were a spectrum of views um, and, uh, uh, we kept, I think, in quite close contact in the years immediately following because uh, uh, we, a number of us went on national speaking tours when we got back to the U.S. because there was so much interest in China. Uh, Nixon's going to China. Nobody knows anything about China. Anyone who'd been there had instant credibility. Uh, and so, you know, traveled around uh, speaking and, and staying in touch. Uh, and I think people, I, I, I think there was among some in the group, there was this sense of not just curiosity, but hope that something good was happening 
in China, you know, politically, socially, and, and so forth. And, and this is where the theatricality comes in. You go to all these model units and you hear all the model stories about how everything is unfolding so wonderfully. Um, and I think at one level, people who in the ping pong team that went to China before we did, the same kind of thing happened. Um, pe many people, I think, wanted, uh, hoping that something good was going to happen. Now, um, many got disabused of that uh, right away, even during the trip, but after the trip to see that there were clear gaps and contradictions. And I talk about some of those in the book, uh, but some of the people in the group who were studying contemporary China and had interviewed and talked with refugees from China and Hong Kong, you know, knew that this theatrical performance that we were both witnessing and participating in, uh, you know, was certainly not, not the whole story. To fast forward many years, uh, just by coincidence, uh, you know, so Susan's a good example. Susan ended up at UC San Diego. And so we've been colleagues, you know, for multiple decades. Uh, and then people on the West Coast, I think, have seen each other. Once in a while, I'll go to and give a talk somewhere in the US and somebody will show up in the audience and come up afterwards. Oh, it was one of the people, you know, who was on the, who was on the trip. Uh, most went into academia, but some didn't. Uh, but uh, I don't think we ever had anything as such as a reunion, uh, but uh, keeping in correspondence, uh, certainly, uh, especially the first three or four years after that initial visit. Well, speaking of the theatricality that you talked about, um, that several questions have come in along the lines of how much did you believe of what you were being told? How much did you believe the people who were telling you what they were telling you believed it? Uh, Emil Chi, who is actually Ji Chao Ju's son, I hope I have that right, son or nephew, I apologize, Emil, I should know that. And Ji Chao Ju was, was Mao's uh, interpreter for many, many years, the man who stood next to Mao. And in fact, he's in one of your pictures, but you've misidentified him, so I have to tell you about that. But anyway, Emil says that he was in China with his family at the same time. They saw the same acupuncture type types of uh, operations that you saw, but he says it was all a fake because before the people went in for the operation and into the operating room, the patient had received injections of procaine. So that wasn't all as it appeared to be. And Tom Gold, your old friend, asked if when you went back in 1978 for your Socialist Village project, were you able to talk with some of the people you met in 1971? And if so, did they tell you the truth um, that they couldn't say in 71? Um, and I, I should say along those lines, I remember being at some factory. I have no idea now what kind of factory. It was a I think it was a tractor factory back in 73 on my first trip. And then going back two or three years later, sometime after 78, going to that exact same factory, being briefed by the exact same woman. But the Jendan Jeshao, that briefing was very different than the me briefing we had had in the years before. And I went up to her and said, you know, you're not going to remember me, but I have my notebook that I brought along with me for my first trip. And I can point out the differences in the two briefings you just gave us. And she looked me straight in the eye and she said, in the old days, this was after reform, the old days, the way to get ahead quickly was to lie to the foreigner. And the person who lied best got promoted the fastest. 
So, you know, it's easy to say that in retrospect, I'm sure the first time around, I believed everything I was told, but how much, you know, at late at night over Mao Tais or over beer, whatever you were drinking, did you guys talk about the reality or unreality of what you'd just seen? Okay. So uh, Mao Tais were not available. <laughs> no, we didn't have the money for it either. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's the key thing that you said is we're talking about something that happened a half century ago, 50 years ago. It sounds strange to me even to say that. Uh, and as I said, some people studied contemporary China, some didn't. Here was this opportunity to go. And I think the main uh, item on the agenda was to try to make what we called in a utopian kind of way, people to people contact. And that's why I worked this theatricality thing into the, uh, into the uh, uh, book, because this, we did take very seriously, every person in the group, what we're calling, you know, what we were calling people to people diplomacy. And so it might be, you know, some high official, but it might be someone on the street or late at night, not, you know, after dinner, you go out for a walk and you just bump into some random people uh, and you speak enough Chinese to be able to communicate with them. Uh, there's this ongoing agenda of trying to leave a good impression, hoping that, you know, hoping against hope that these two places will be able to get together you know, on into the future. So I think, as I say in the book, I think we were, we were quite clear that going to all of these model units, I think I say at some point in the book, visiting China in the middle of 1971 was a bit like going on a group tour to North Korea today. Uh, and you know, you're going to be taken around to these units and everything's going well. And uh, it just, uh, and if you don't know that much, you take notes and you think about it or take the medical stuff. What do I know about medicine? I'm standing there in surgeon's gown watching somebody being you know, operated on and I'm being told that the only means of anesthesia is acupuncture. Um, you know, what am, what am I to think? I just you know, take the notes down, take the photographs, you know, and so forth. In retrospect, it looks very interesting with the Mao book beside somebody's head. And you know, this, again, this performance aspect of what was going on is what I try to emphasize. And the fact that we were you know, doing that sort of thing too. Uh, Tom's question is a very good one because um, I didn't get to go back to China again until 1978. Uh, and uh, uh, to start this, uh, sorry, 77, I went back in 77, but we started this village uh, uh, field research project. Uh, Ed Friedman, uh, Mark Selden, and I uh, started a project uh, in 78 in Wugong village. I had not visited that village in 71, so there was no way to go back and actually talk to people I'd spoken to in, in 71 in villages. But the people in the village in 78 were a lot like the people I had spoken to in villages all around China in 1971. And even in 78, this is the Pierre Hua Guofeng was the new leader and a uh, gang of four had been arrested, but a lot of things still felt a lot like the Cultural Revolution. And we had learned so much more about China in the intervening six, seven years. Uh, but even then, it took a tremendous amount of time. We had a lot of uh, uh, interest in publishing a book right away. We had done the first village research, you know, project uh, in the in the post uh, Nixon visit period, and uh, publishers wanted us. And we waited. We waited for years actually because we had to go back again a second time, a third time, a fourth time, and you actually begin to establish decent relations with certain of the people being interviewed, whether they're in the poor peasant category, middle peasant, rich peasant, landlord. You know, category, you get to the point where 
they begin to get what it is you're trying to do. And so we'd go over the same questions. And every time you go back, it got better and better and better. Uh, and that element, so this is that, I would call it this element of trust that they understood we were trying to do something serious um, and they trusted us. They didn't think we were spies or, or something and they no longer felt that compulsion to just say a lot of things that you know, may, may, were just a lot of nonsense. Uh, but in 1971, I think that would have been way too much to, to expect. Again, there were ironic things happened. Uh, I mean, just one example I'll give uh, that I talk about in the book at length in the, in the taste chapter was going to Dajai, which was the number one model village in China at the time. The slogan, this was Mao's number one model village. Chen was the leader of the village. Uh, we met Chen Yun Gui in Dajai. Uh, we had dinner one night. We broke up into small groups, and I actually was uh, in the group that went and had dinner in Chen Yun Gui's home. It was a cave. It was basically a cave, and we're sitting there, two or three of us, uh, along with uh, Chen and a couple of other officials, and the food is being brought out, and I couldn't help but notice that the women were nowhere present, the Chinese women. And I actually asked a question. I talk about it in the book. And I said, oh, what about, you know, the women were preparing the food behind the scenes. And I brought this up as an example of, uh, you know, men and women are equal. Yeah, and, and, but what's the explanation for why the women are preparing the food and serving us and all the men are sitting out here, you know, eating and, and so forth. And uh, then he replied with some vague response about, uh, well, there are cultural traditions and so forth that are meaningful, you know, in these villages and so forth. Uh, but uh, you know, so, so even within the performances, the big performance, the small performances for us, there were contradictions, there were things that uh, didn't, didn't quite make sense. And so, you know, we did get some of that. But again, you wouldn't want to exaggerate the extent to which you could get uh, at that time, under those circumstances, get the kind of picture that ever so slowly, you know, began to come out uh, in, in subsequent years, especially in the, in the, by the 1980s. Paul, both you and I have been, I think, mildly chastised by Professor Tom Grunfeld, who points out that it was, act, there's, neither one of us mentioned the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, which in fact was the group that was invited to visit. So if you could briefly tell everyone about that committee, but also Tom's question, or Tom's comment raises a question to me, and how much do you think this, the reason you were invited was because of this organization, the Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, which was a group of American Asian scholars who were very opposed to the Vietnam War and the Chinese were picking up on that. And how much of it was this personal connection that you made with one of the Chinese journalists who lived in Hong Kong at the time and okay. with whom you'd made friends? Yeah, uh, uh, thanks, Tom. Great question. In, in some ways, the short answer—the short answer—is all of the above. Uh, so, uh, CCAS stood for Committee of Concerned Asian Scholars, and if my memory serves me, it was launched in 1969. I had just started uh, my PhD program at the University of Wisconsin, uh, and I think it was set up. It was mainly graduate students and junior faculty who studied Asia. So that wasn't just China. There were people who studied Japan, uh, Korea, India, uh, and so forth. And I think initially uh, the younger faculty members who launched it 
saw it as an alternative to the establishment organization of the Association for Asian Studies. Association for Asian Studies, I think the feeling among young people was, should have been saying more by way of critique about the war in Vietnam. But again, I think the young people who, who uh, got involved in CCAS, uh, they, again, spectrum of political views all over the map. Um, and, um, uh, and then issues like women's lib and so forth were also part of that. I had just, I mean, 1969, just at about the time I went to that conference in Boston, uh, uh, there was a, a black student movement at the University of Wisconsin uh, that, that I just recently went through all my memorabilia about that movement uh, in 1969, uh, which, which was so, I, going through all the documents, it reminded me so much of what's going on today. It's still going on today. And so uh, these are young people who are concerned about a range of social issues, women's lib, uh, you know, uh, black lives, uh, racism, so on and so forth, also about war and, and the opposition to the war. Uh, professionals should be doing more to speak out, you know, against the war. Uh, and so I think that more or less explains the origin of it. And then at different universities, there were different chapters of the organization. Again, very diverse. When we got to Hong Kong, uh, uh, some of the people who ended up going on the trip had been active uh, to a more or less degree on their home campus. Others hadn't been active at all or not even belonged. But uh, it turned out that uh, we thought that might make sense. I did make personal contact uh, with uh, someone in China, a publisher, who I talk about at length in the book, who got very interested in us as young people. Uh, and um, we decided ultimately we would put ourselves forward. We didn't run it by anybody or check it with anyone. We just put ourselves forward as the Hong Kong chapter uh, of this group. Uh, and we were intensely interested in visiting China. We wanted to promote, you know, people to people relations and, you know, better use Sino-American relations, you know, all of that stuff there that was part of our agenda. Uh, I, I think that is part of the reason, but of course, just before us, the ping pong team had been invited. Uh, and after us, there were other groups being invited. So I think another part of the picture is what we don't know at that moment is behind the scenes, the Chinese and American governments are talking secretly. And of course, we all learn this in the middle of our trip when Kissinger shows up secretly and then departs China, Nixon's coming. Okay, that couldn't have been happening unless there were some talks going on well before this. So I guess at about the time that I was uh, trying to represent the group to people in Hong Kong as young people who would love to have the chance to go to China, a very diverse group of young people who really want closer relations between, between China and the United States. At exactly that time, this is just the luck factor. I think they were looking for people to invite different kinds of people representing different kinds of groups. And we were, oh, maybe they imagined we were the younger generation of uh, US-China scholars. And so, you know, may, you know, maybe it made sense. Uh, and then maybe we were not Cold War minded and uh, open to, to dialogue and so on and so forth. Again, we were never told that. Uh, we just suddenly get the invitation to go and, you know, guess what? We go uh, and so forth. So I think, I mean, it's a great question, but I think all of those factors played into the final, uh, you know, formal invitation to go. And uh, I should remember, uh, I, I want to mention very quickly in passing, some of this stuff was just so funny because 
you'll know this, uh, maybe young people today won't realize it, but U.S. passports at that time in 1971, I still have my passport. I still have it. And I talk about it in the book. U.S. passports at that time, it says in them, the passport is not valid for use. And it has a list of places. And the category for China was not valid for use in communist controlled areas of China, which would have been everything except Taiwan. <laughs> yes. So that was pretty funny. Uh, nobody took that very seriously. And of course, again, out of luck, because behind the scenes, relations are beginning to change, secret visits are being made. So this is, I think, the last point at which uh, anybody wants to make a fuss about us uh, you know, going to China anyway, in violation of what it was, what was said on the passport. But it was interesting as we entered China, though, uh, that day, walking across the bridge at Lowu, uh, and when the passports were stamped, they were not stamped in the actual passport. They didn't, they wouldn't recognize the passport. It was on a separate piece of paper, and it was tucked into the passport. Uh, I still have that too. Very, very interesting. All of these minor little details that reflect on. Uh, a really complicated situation that you know nobody knew where it was going to go. And nobody could have predicted uh, in the middle of '71 that Lin Biao was going to be dead in a couple of months. That the you know Jiang Tunxiao and Yuan Jiangqing, all these people were going to be arrested, and that slowed down. The, in fact, I, later I'll tell you a Joe and Lai story about that. But it sl it slowed down the uh, uh, ongoing possibilities of better relations between China and the United States until. 78, 79, you know, when things began to warm up again. Well, alas, um, you're telling us that story about Joe and Lai is going to have to wait for another meeting with you because we are quickly running out of time. I, I really wanted to talk about the Joe and Lai meeting because uh, when I, my first visit, we met with him as well. And I have some very interesting memories of that trip and I would love to maybe just privately we can can talk about those. Um, there was also a, a very good question. I, Professor Madeline Jung wanted to ask a question but if you can answer it in one or two sentences. First of all she says how nice it is to see you and she's looking forward to reading your book but her comment is that this visit happened at a time when the U.S. and China barely had any meaningful relationships. Today, U.S.-China relationship seems to be descending into a very dark place. What kind of insights did you glean from your trip and on U.S.-China relations today and in the future? Okay, I mean, this again. Uh, uh, I know it's a lovely. long question to answer in one minute, but no, no. go. Yes, a very lovely person has asked this question, deserving of a lovely answer. Uh, I think there is meaning still today of what is going on, what was happening in 71 and what is happening today. I open the paper every day and I just, oh my God. So a lot of the messiness of what we see now is happening at the state to state level. Uh, it seems to get messier and mess I think it's gonna get worse before it gets better. But what I urge everybody to do, and this is something I, I, I think I internalized as early as 1971 is keep your people-to-people -people contacts going. I have tons of friends in China, uh, academics, uh, journalists, all sorts of people, former students, and we need to stay in touch with each other more than ever. And of course, uh, maybe WeChat is gonna end pretty soon, but anyway, there are ways for us to communicate. 
uh, by email, by FaceTime. Uh, I've been teaching in China the last couple of years and hope to be able to get back there again once the uh, pandemic is over. But it's again, it may sound trivial and trite, but, but I don't think it is. I think people at the level below the state need to stay in touch and talk to each other and be honest with each other. And I get enormous rewards from doing that. I, I, I come away buoyed up. Uh, and, and, and including uh, my students from China uh, here in the US. Uh, it's, just, it's just precious. They add a dimension that uh, I don't know what we'd do without it. And they're making such a difference in the field once they go out into the field. So that's the takeaway, that idea of uh, let's not think the only realm that exists is the state to state realm. Uh, there are other realms and I think we have to keep that uh, very much alive, especially now. Well, in the light of that wonderful, inspiring last comment, uh, I'm going to go to something a little lighter. We've got two questions about food, and these have to be the last questions. Two questions about food. One is from Ted Enberg, uh, who is a former intern at the National Committee. He wants to know, what was the most Western place to eat or to go to during that time in China? Which should be a very easy answer for you. Um, and the second question about food, you just mentioned that the prior question came from a very lovely lady. And I'm sure you'll think this questioner is also a very lovely lady because it's from your daughter, Natasha. <laughs> and Natasha wants to know, could you please speak a little as to how your experiences with food and cooking informed your observations of this particular period? And before you answer that, I should note for all of our listeners that I've just found out that today is your anniversary and yes. that you're not only Natasha, but she and your wife are listening in on this. So we want to wish all three of you a happy anniversary. And now go ahead and answer those two food related questions. Okay, wow. <laughs> Okay, what a way, great way to end, actually. The food thing, I mean, frankly, remembering back to 71 and that trip, I don't remember getting access or having access to so-called foreign food, Western food, and that would include Japanese food or Southeast Asian food anywhere in China. But in terms of Western culture, I actually do have quite a big section on, the, uh, on one of my chapters uh, about ballet. And I talk about the famous model ballet, Red Detachment of Women, I talk about that at length in the book in ways that I think some people will find surprising. Uh, and one of them is that ballet, this is one of Mao's wife's, you know, Zhang Qing's model uh, performances, and it's actually Western ballet, nothing Chinese about ballet. And the music was uh, orchestral music that is very Western. Uh, and so um, that was really interesting. It struck me because there was so much emphasis on, you know, Chinese this, Chinese that, Chinese culture, uh, and so forth. And yet this model ballet was uh, in its own unintended way. That's the way I talk about it, mesmerizing. Uh, so, but no food. I remember in the, in the late 70s getting there. If you could find a place, there were places that were selling vanilla ice cream at the Be Beijing Hotel. You know, if you got over there, you, you could get a scoop of vanilla ice cream. That's 1977, 78. So it took a while for the food to kick in. Uh, Natasha. <laughs> yeah. So she's asked me a question that would take me an hour to answer. Uh, but uh, I actually think that this is a huge gap in the China studies field. And whether you're talking about antiquity, uh, middle period, late imperial, modern, contemporary, we need to have much more serious research on the meaning of 
food and culinary experiences uh, in Chinese culture. Uh, and uh, the connections to social, economic, political, uh, all sorts of other cultural issues. Uh, it's just food is so central to the culture. And I'm just surprised that not more people have done. I do a little, you know, I have a tiny little bit. I have one chapter on the subject uh, that is, and again, it involves some ironies and things that caught me by surprise uh, in the culinary scene. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's so, so much more that needs to be done. And I think it's a great uh, topic. Uh, and yeah, it is, it is true. I mean, this was supposed to be a live event in New York uh, today because long ago we had scheduled a visit uh, for our wedding anniversary to go to New York oh. to see our daughter Natasha, uh, who lives in Greenpoint uh, and uh, is very well known in culinary circles, I should say. Uh, and yes, my wife is, is from China. We were, that's another story altogether, another book. Uh, I, I could call the book Trying to Get Married in China in 1983. <laughs> it wasn't easy. Uh, but anyway, that's another story, not part of this book. But uh, yeah, it's been 37 years. And uh, I just wish it could have been in New York. Uh, so we could have a reunion. And the committee, uh, I haven't forgotten this. Uh, by the way, uh, Jan, uh, the committee promised us a nice dinner after, <laughs> after the event was over. So I'm going to well, it's, it's a standing invitation. We look forward to welcoming you and your wife and Natasha to uh, Chinese, the best Chinese meal we can find in New York for you because you deserve it. This was a wonderful program. We really appreciate your enthusiasm and your warmth and your openness throughout. I'm sorry to all of those who sent in some really interesting questions. There just isn't enough time in an hour and we already gone over by five minutes. So my apologies to all of you. I was going to describe some of the upcoming programs we have uh, this week, one on TikTok, one next week on diplomacy, Canada avert a new Cold War, and another program that I'm not remembering. So please go to our website. We look forward to seeing you on future programs. And again, Paul, thank you so very much for this. It was wonderful. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.